0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, TrinitySpartanburg.com. Let's open to John chapter 18, please. And stand for the reading of God's Word, John 18, 1 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohorts and officers from the chief priests and and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, Let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us help, that we would apply this passage, and that in hearing it, we would then do this word. To the praise and glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, we've spent a number of months, actually since October 16th, um, going through the words of Jesus to his men during the night before his arrest and trial. So 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is that one evening. And, and, uh, We've been there for a while. It's a lot of dense words as we would expect the Son of God to give to the men that will carry on the gospel after him. He's been building them up because they will, I mean, they have that amazing task. They have the task of taking the Word of God, taking the gospel out to the ends of the earth. What an amazing thing he gives them to do. We then looked at the prayer in chapter 17. And that was a prayer for the apostles and their coming work, but also for the church in every age. And so now we move on to the final acts of Jesus' life. The arrest, the, the trial, if we can call it that, crucifixion, and resurrection. There's never been a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday like those that we will be setting our minds to over the next few months in our Sunday uh, mornings, Lord willing, that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that Thursday, Friday, that, that week. Nothing like it. Jesus rises up after pouring himself out in prayer to his Father and completes the journey that they're making. Remember, they started walking halfway, some point in, in his discourse with them, some point um, they start walking and so they've now completed the journey that they had undertaken and they come into this familiar garden. It's a garden that he frequently uh, where he frequently met with his men. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows that the decisive hour has come, the fullness of time was at hand. He had work to do, heavier work than any man could could ever possibly perform. He has to bear the sins of the world on the cross. And he's agonizing about that. Funny enough, we don't read about that agony in the Gospel of John. We read about it in the other Gospels, his prayers. But here, John focuses on other matters. This brook, Kidron, is a small stream. Just a small stream that, you know, it dries up, it's seasonal, it dries up during the dry season. Lies on the east side of Jerusalem. It's between the Mount of Olives and the city. It was this brook that King David crossed when he was sent into exile by his own son Absalom. The text mentions that he, uh, it says that while all the country was weeping, this was after Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So David King David crossed this brook in the opposite direction of Jesus and and that was his humiliation. He was having to leave his kingdom and now Jesus is crossing it and arriving for his humiliation, his humiliation on the cross. The very opposite direction but the same kind of humiliation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, picture a, a walled olive grove. That's what they're in. Simple walled olive grove. He and his men used to go there and meet and uh, pass the time and receive teaching and eat together. They may, even if there was a shelter, have spent nights in that garden together. It was familiar to them, and that meant it was a place that Judas knew about. That's precisely why Jesus goes there. He knows Judas knows about it, right? Right? And the events that are taking place are not ones where Jesus is this sort of hapless victim. That's something we have to get in our heads now. Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. He is headed to the cross. There is no other destination for him. He is the one who will lay down his own life and he is the one who will take it up. And so all of these things is him orchestrating history so that your sins might be atoned for. So Jesus knows exactly what is happening, and he's boldly moving forward to complete the work that his father gave him to accomplish. He is going to his death willingly, voluntarily. Think for a moment about those who arrive to arrest Jesus. It's a coalition of an apostate disciple Judas, the jealous and corrupt church authorities, scribes and Pharisees, and a pagan civil government, the Romans. It's a coalition of an apostate, corrupt church leaders, and a pagan government. All of them want Jesus dealt with, out of the way, hidden off. Miserable Judas has left the side of the Savior of the world in order to work hand in hand with the worldly powers. Worldly powers that determine Jesus was no Savior but a destroyer who would cause trouble for their earthly kingdoms. Right? The Prince of Peace comes to mankind and after hearing him preach about salvation. Hearing him preach about his mission to save, mankind sticks a sword to his neck. We don't want to hear that. We'll save ourselves, thank you very much. One commentator says, They arrived in force under the cover of darkness to snuff out the light of the world. Little did they know what was coming right? Little did they know what was coming. But think on Judas a bit more. Judas had known so much of Jesus, right? He had known so much, he, having spent time with Jesus in this very garden where these men, um, where he takes these, these enemies of Christ to arrest him. He had preached Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. He had announced that Jesus Christ had power, right? Judas had likely experienced that power of Christ and the power of the Spirit and the casting out of demons. I mean, Judas had quite a bit of knowledge, didn't he? More than any of us. Three years with him, learning everything, seeing everything, going around with him, seeing him talk with a hundred people who aren't, you know, he has thousands of circumstances that aren't even recorded for us in Scripture that he experienced the power of Jesus Christ. And that was not enough to save him. He had so much experience, didn't he? And that was not enough to save him. His knowledge didn't save him, his experience of Christ did not save him. Judas became voluntarily, this was not against his will, though he is the son of perdition, he voluntarily became a guide to those who hated Jesus Christ. He was a spy for those who hated Christ and led them to this garden. He stood by, notice in our text it says he stood by while Jesus was arrested after betraying Jesus with a kiss. He stood by the, when, when, when these forces arrested Jesus, even though he knew firsthand just how incredibly godly this man was. Ryle says, From the highest degree of privilege down to the lowest depth of sin, there is but a succession of steps. Privileges misused seem to paralyze the conscience. He's speaking of Judas. Privileges misused seem to paralyze the conscience. Do you remember now? Why would why would Judas's conscience be paralyzed? Do you remember what Judas used to do? Not a very big thing. I mean, in the grand scheme of sins, I wouldn't put this at the you know, the, the, the top. He used to just take a little bit of money out of the money box that Jesus had for him and his disciples and their provisioning. He just used a little bit, a little bit of money. You know, a little, one little lie every now and then. One little taking of the money. That, dear brothers and sisters, was the beginning of Judas's conscience Being paralyzed. Do you realize that? That one little sin led to other sins. That one little unrepented for sin led to other sins and on and on and on. Until his conscience is so seared, his conscience is so bad that he's like 30 pieces of silver, no problem. I know exactly where he meets. I'll take him there to you. You'll see me kiss him. Arrest him. Kill him. I'll have what I want. And he's deemed the son of hell, the son of damnation, the son of perdition. He kept that sin hidden, right? That taking of the, from the money box. He just kept it hidden was one little thing that he kept to himself he was maybe he was just too embarrassed to ever confess it to to any of the other disciples or any or to certainly to Jesus himself he was just too embarrassed and so he he kept it hidden though Jesus knew of it And before long, he just keeps that one sin hidden. Before long, his conscience is so gone that he's standing with the enemies of God who are attempting to stamp out the very light of the world from a little sin to the most heinous and notorious sin of all time. The betrayal of the Son of God. Ryle says, let us beware of cherishing within our hearts any secret besetting sins such as love of money or love of the world. One faulty link in a chain cable may cause a shipwreck. One little leak may sink a ship. One allowed and unmortified sin may ruin a professing Christian. Let him that is tempted to be a careless man in his religious life consider these things and take care. Let him remember Judas Iscariot. His history is meant to be a lesson. Right, It's recorded for us to be a lesson. He went from bad to worse because there was no repentance. Now, hidden sins, dear brothers and sisters, this is me being a pastor We all have hidden sins. If you want to deal with them, bring them out into the light. Confess them to your pastors and elders. It's the happiest part of our job, though it is a burden to bear, uh, given some of the sins that we have kept hidden. But that is the way to begin dealing with them. The little sins. Start with the little sins, right? Deal with them, right? Don't leave your sins hidden. Don't follow this path that Judas has shown you is a terrible path to follow. And so, you know, you've, you've cheated on your taxes for your... Confess it to your elders and make it right, etc., 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 right? Let's deal with these things. Now, next... Verse 4, notice that Jesus knew what was coming. In other words, he's going to his death voluntarily. He knows what is coming, and he's fulfilling the mission that his father gave him. There is in this verse a little indication of the movement that I think is, there's, a, there's an indication of Jesus' movement that I want to make much of. Okay, this is, this is the main point of this sermon. Notice that Jesus, it says, went forth. Jesus knows what's coming. The people are are coming to get him. It's a it's a Roman cohort. This is this is 500 people coming to arrest him. I mean, it's a it's going to be a racket. And Jesus begins to hear them and what does he do? He goes he stands up, he moves toward them. He greets them. Right? And what, that's a simple indication that you know he's not a victim of circumstances, that he is actually moving forward. He is moving forward toward uh, the cross. He is not shunning the cross. He's doing all this willingly, um, even though he has that very night already prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. That happens moments before this. Lord, take this cup from me, but, but that's not the whole prayer. Prayer is one of faith because he says, not my will, but your will be done, right? But notice that Jesus moves forward to meet those who are coming at him. Those who would attack him, he's moving toward them. Men, I want you to remember this motion of Jesus. When trouble comes to Jesus, he does not back down or hide. He moves toward the trouble. moves toward the trouble and I'm talking to the men it's our temptation is it not men to hide when trouble comes we hide and then excuse ourselves with all kinds of sophisticated principles right we hide not so our savior and our lord Jesus Christ and our example right A whole Roman cohort is coming at him, and he moves forward to them and speaks to them before they speak to him. He's seeing trouble and moving toward it. He is not hiding, but if you are like me, when trouble comes, you want to withdraw and fall back. You don't want to have to discipline your children and bear that weight. You see one of them's in trouble. You see he's pestering his siblings, and you want to go and hide so you don't see it. Because you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to have to work through sickness. You see sickness coming on, and you just, you, you don't want to work. You want to be lazy, right? You don't want to even answer the door when a solicitor comes, and so you allow your children to answer the door when a solicitor comes to the comes a-knocking. Men, we let others take our responsibilities upon their shoulders, and we flee and cower and make a principle out of our inaction. This kind of cowardice is neither manly nor is it godly, brothers. It's cowardice. Look at Jesus. He strides forward to meet this huge array of military power, and he speaks to them first. He says, whom do you seek? Standing before them, whom do you seek? He knows, but he will be asking the questions. He knows whom they're they're coming to seek, but he is going to address them first with his question, right? He knows. He's speaking first. He's in control of the situation right from the start. Whom do you seek? He did not flee, but notice also that he did not fight. He doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't flee. He doesn't fight. He speaks. He leads. He advances forward. He doesn't draw a sword as Peter foolishly does in in moments. He does not cower and he does not draw blood. He is wonderfully in control. He is wonderfully trusting his father that, that he is over the circumstances. He does not have to resort to hiding or to fighting. I wonder how many of us men, when faced with adversity, with, faced with some kind of enemy, with conflict, have that kind of presence of, of mind and faith in God. We're either prone to withdraw or to cover our fear with ridiculous shows of force. We want to hide or flex, Right? It's the it's like it's like be a three year old or or welcome to the gun show. Our children challenge us and we see red and start yelling and throwing things. Welcome to the the gun show, three year old children. And then as soon as our foolish zeal ends, we withdraw and soothe ourselves with warm thoughts of our violent zeal, you know. Boy, I really told those three-year-olds, you know, that was, that was zeal for reform. Jesus is self-controlled. The situation he's facing does not lead to foolish violence or cowardly inaction. And honestly, thinking about the whole situation, he's also a willing sufferer. He knows that his arrest will lead to his crucifixion. And his crucifixion will lead ultimately to the redemption of God's elect. So he's not cowering, he's not fighting, he's embracing suffering. For you. He's self-controlled. He's not passive. He's not violently aggressive. He's embracing the responsibility God has placed upon him, even though it will lead to the the most profound suffering any man has ever experienced or will ever experience. Now, men, think about the responsibility he has placed on you. He has told you to control your vessel. So if you're a single man, you have your own urges to fight. You're called to be self-controlled and stride forth to face down your enemies. If you're a married man, he calls you to carry the responsibility of yourself and your wife. If your wife is any good to you, she will challenge you. You must meet the challenge without running away or being foolishly violent. You must lead with your words and your encouragement in the mission God has given you. If you're a married man with children, he calls you to carry the responsibility of many other people. Once again, you must stride forward to meet the challenge as Jesus moved forward toward that bloodthirsty cohort. You must speak, you must be self-controlled and set aside both your tendency to withdraw and hide and your tendency to cover your fear with violent words and violent actions and overzealous ridiculousness. One last thing on this little phrase, he went forth. Okay, All of this just vamping on that action of Jesus. He went forth to meet his enemies. Matthew Henry writes... When the people would have forced him to take a crown and wished to make him a king, he withdrew and hid himself. But when they came to force him to his cross, he offered himself. He came to this world to suffer and went to the other world to reign. Do you get that? Do you, do you understand Right? There was that time when, when it's like John 6, I believe, where the people all gather together and they want to make Jesus their king. And he gets out of Dodge. He flees. He's like, no, running from that. This kingdom's not of this, this world. Right? Why would he want to accept that sort of dinky little kingdom? He rules the earth. Right? He has a kingdom. He is a king. Right, And so he flees from that. He flees from what glory he would have had in that. And then he embraces and rushes forward. And it means he's going to die. He's going to be a sacrifice. He's going to serve you. That's when he, he won't run and hide. That's when he won't back down. You see, Jesus Christ had faith. Perfect faith. So there are times, brothers, when you should withdraw and hide yourself. When? When others are fawning over your supposed excellence. And when they want to make you a king. Run from flattery. When others are seeking to hitch their wagon to your supposed successes. When others are elevating you to a position without acknowledging your weaknesses. Right? There are hyper-patriarchal families that flatter the fathers continually and tell everyone who will listen that their father or their husband walks on water. He literally walks on water. I've seen it. I mean, you'll hear these hyper-patriarchal families do that. He's flawless and faultless. His discernment is impeccable, right? It's way better than the pastor's discernment. They do this even though they know in their hearts that their father's sins and their household is a wreck. It's actually a form of hiding. Hiding the sin of the household. But don't cultivate that kind of home, brothers. Right? When others try to make you a king, when when your kids want to make you a king, the first thing you should do is say, Oh, honey, I am a sinner saved by grace. And there really is nothing That's glorious about me other than the fact that Christ is in me. (laughs) When others try to make you a king, flee and hide yourself. But again, on the other hand, when it comes to protecting and providing for those under your care, you must stride forth. You must get out of the house first. You must work the hardest. You must be out front. You must speak and act. I'm talking to the men. You must speak and act. You must take the bull by the horns, right? You must not put those under your care on the front lines of battle as you drop back. You're 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 an artillery guy. You're not a general. You gotta be on the front line shooting the gun. It'd be nice to be the general dropping back, right? Just remember this, brothers. Remember this. Jesus strode forth and met this whole Roman cohort, and that is an example to us of manliness, of masculinity. Enough on that. Moving on in the text, we see that Jesus speaks first. He takes the initiative, whom do you seek? And the weak response is, Jesus the Nazarene? That's how I read it. Perhaps they didn't even recognize him. It could have been that. But in a moment, they would do so miraculously. They would recognize him miraculously. Jesus says two little Greek words to them. Ego me. Ego me," I am is what he says. If you notice in your New American Standard Bible, it says I am he and the he is italicized. It's an editorial insert. Right? Trying to make sense of the grammar. What he says is, I am. It should make the hair stand up on your neck. Right? He says, I am. Yes, he's indicated that they've found their man, but it's so much more than just indicated, yeah, it's me. He's also saying something specific about who they have found. Right? They have found not merely a man from Nazareth, but they have found God. They have found God himself in this little garden. As was disclosed to Moses in the burning bush, Jesus is telling those gathered there that they have found the I am. They are dealing with something beyond what they have ever dealt with and that power that truth that he is disclosing himself to be Yahweh is confirmed in a miracle that then takes place they all fall to the ground no roman cohort is going to do that unless their unless their commander tells them to fall to the ground they're going to stand in formation but they fall to the ground right When Jesus says, I am, they all fall down as if worshiping. And yes, he is willingly laying down his life, but he takes this moment. He takes this one little moment to assert who he is and that they would be able to do nothing if it had not been granted to them by the will of the Father. He takes this one little moment to put them in their place these Romans and Pharisees and scribes are bowing their knees to the Son of God, (laughs) giving even feigned worship. Falling down is often shown in Scripture to be the appropriate reaction to the presence of God, isn't it? Deuteronomy 9, I fell down before the Lord... As at the first 40 days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. That's Moses. Matthew 2.11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Luke 8, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. The same thing is happening here. Even with Christ's enemies. Yet he is using restraint here, isn't he? He could have commanded a legion of angels at, at, at that moment to come and slay these men. He could have cast their souls into hell immediately. Calvin says, if they had been struck down by a violent tempest, or rather by a thunderbolt, he lays them prostrate on the ground. There was no want of power in him, therefore, to restrain their hands. If he had thought proper, but he wished to obey his Father by those by whose decrees he knew that he was called to die, right? Jesus could have done those things, but he's more focused on his mission for your soul. He doesn't lose sight of his mission, all very good for our future, isn't it? But here is a little demonstration of the power that will one day be revealed on the great day of judgment, this one little falling down. Christ will return and every knee will bow on that great day. Every knee will bow. He questions them again, whom do you seek? And again, they weakly give the answer, Jesus the Nazarene. He then says that he is Jesus and notice what he then does after he displayed his divine power. He secures the release of his men. There's never a time when Jesus is not concerned about others. In eternity and since his incarnation, he concerns himself with the glory of his Father. In his work as intercessor intercessor even now, he concerns himself with your eternal glory and comfort. Even hours before bearing the wrath of his Father on the cross, he's concerning himself with these men who are with him. He secures their safety. Why? Because they're, they're the ones that are going to go out into the world and preach Jesus Christ. And all of that just proves that the Son of God had even others in mind when he was securing their release. He had, he had you in mind when he's securing his apostles' release. He knew you needed His word, their word. One might think that they would have... Um, still arrested Peter because he assaulted an officer. It's another little miracle. Peter gets off. I mean, he just, nothing happens to him. And it's like he assaulted somebody. That would have enraged the powers that be. But even he is released by this bold work of the Son of God. The good shepherd is always protecting his flock. Now, though you don't see him, brothers and sisters, he is protecting you. You know that, right? Right. It's so easy to forget as as disasters come and diseases arise and sinful violence exists and the effects of sin in your own heart but around the world are so very present. But the reality is as God is with you, he's a good shepherd who knows his sheep, he will always secure your release. He will secure your release from sin, from darkness, from fears, and even from death. He's going to secure your release. You are his, and he lovingly and everlastingly cares for you, so don't be scared. Don't be scared. One last thing on Simon Peter. Here is this wonderful apostle again doing what the other apostles would not do, either because they were scared or because they have some self-control. Peter is not quite content to let Jesus lay down his life willingly. In an act of courage without knowledge, he unsheathes the sword and lashes out at one of the religious men's servants. In Luke, we learn that Jesus immediately healed that ear of Malchus. And that minor detail is left out in John, as with other details, While the the other Gospels emphasize that the action Peter took was an action whereby he was trying to establish the kingdom by the sword or by physical compulsion, John takes a different explanation that Jesus gave in response to Peter's action. John focuses on how Peter's action was a potential hindrance to his work as the one who is called to drink the cup of God's wrath. He was to suffer and die to fulfill God's purpose to redeem sinners like you and I. He was to drink that cup down to the dregs and exhaust God's wrath. And Peter's getting in the way of that. Now to bring this around to something applicable again, I understand that many of you, and I'm thinking again of the men, are fearful. You're afraid. You see a mountain to climb before you, you can't even take the first step, but remember the faith of our Lord. Remember that moments before the cohort comes to arrest him, Jesus had been pleading with the Father that the cup be taken away, but even in the way he pleads, we learn that he is not lacking courage. It's not a faithless prayer. My will, not my will, but your will be done. If Jesus had given into his fears, perhaps he would have been delighted to see Simon Peter take out that sword and begin hacking off the limbs of his enemies. But he stays focused on his mission. He came to die for sinners and do the will of his Father. That mission is very clear when Jesus corrects Peter by speaking of the cup. He must drink, he is faithful, he is loving, he is responsible, he is leading, he is out front, he is protecting. And brothers, by, the, by faith you may do the same. You really may do the same. Yes, there will be repentance along the way, you will sin, but you can begin to stride forth. You can begin to take initiative to be the one up front, to be the one protecting, to be the one suffering so that others may have comfort, right? That's really the calling of men. calling of men is to take on suffering, to carry responsibilities so that others may have ease. That's exactly what Jesus did. He suffered that we might have eternal ease, eternal comfort. Can we remember this, brothers? Can can we just remember the simple fact that Jesus went forth? Just remember that. Put that image in your mind. Jesus went forth. And do the same thing. Just see where you are falling back continually and try something different. Try praying and then taking that step forward, going forth. Can we imitate Christ in this? And the answer is yes, but only with the Holy Spirit's help. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we glorify your name. We thank you that you're our Father. We thank you that Jesus is our brother. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has been sent by them to indwell us. And Father, I pray that pray for the men of this church that we would remember the faithful example of Jesus Christ in the garden striding forth to meet His difficulty, striding forth to meet his enemy, striding forth to embrace suffering that would lead to so much protection and so much glory and so much comfort. Lord, lodge this in our minds and may we pray and be faithful in our task to lead. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.